introduction to the reading of the invocation psalm this morning. Several of our psalms in song and hymns speak very much of the background to the passage that we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 2, the first four verses. And I've often mentioned that um, Gentiles, as we read these things, these things about Passover or Pentecost, simply read words. The Jew read an entire history, an entire history of God's work in their lives and their nation unfolded in front of them whenever they heard or whenever they celebrated the feasts about which we are to read. So I hope that um, as you've spent time in the Old Testament reading the history of God's redemption, these words begin to have a greater meaning to you as well, things that, uh, that we were not a party to, that we were not privileged with, but we have been so graciously brought into. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the first four verses. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would grant us understanding that does not come with our particular heritage, but does with faith. That you have grafted us into the same stock, the same nation, through whom you brought about your redemptive purposes, and especially your Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we read your word, that we would put ourselves within the context of the history of what you have done, so that each time we read of a day like Pentecost, that there would be much history that would come to our minds, that it would help illuminate the word that we are reading. Give us understanding, Father, and give us grace to live according to that which we learn. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the history of the nation of Israel, that God, as He was establishing the commonwealth of Israel, established for them three annual feasts. Feasts for which all of the men of Israel, and we presume as we read the history, their families also attended with them, would go up to wherever God had caused His name to dwell. Whether that was the tabernacle at Shiloh or whether it was the temple in Jerusalem, three times a year all of the men of Israel were to gather together to celebrate three annual feasts. Now these feasts, though they were annual, basically covered only about a half of a year. They were, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed immediately upon the day of Passover. There was the Feast of First Fruits, also known as the Feast of Weeks or Fifty Days, which in the Greek is Pentecost. And then there was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, associated with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. These three feasts, as I said, took place over a period of about six months, the first two being closer together. And they did follow the agricultural cycle of this ancient people. In the ancient world, there were many feasts 
that people and societies established to commemorate the natural events that were integral to their survival in an agrarian culture. They lived off the land. And so, for example, every, every December 25th, the day that we call Christmas, was in fact the, the day of Saturnalia. and began the Feast of Saturnalia, which was meant to honor the winter solstice, which you wonder, why would you do that, except that it's the dead of winter and you need to do something. Well, it's because for the last six months, the days have been getting shorter and shorter and the nights longer and longer and everything colder and colder and entering into what appeared to be a death of the earth. But beginning with the winter solstice, the days would slowly begin getting longer. An annual reminder of the seasons that even the pagans recognized that the world would not descend into darkness, but rather every six months it would turn around and start, the days would get longer again until the middle of summer. And so this was something to celebrate. It was a natural uh, agricultural component of the lives of ancient people. But the Hebrew feasts were more complex than that. They did contain the natural agricultural component, as we will see as we look at these feasts briefly this morning. But they had so much more. James Alexander writes in his commentary, these annual observances were not mere arbitrary institutions, but connected in the minds of those observing them with three distinct sets of associations. The first derived from nature, the second from experience, the third from the promises of God and the expectations of his people. Each feast had those three associations. The one that we see on the surface is the natural. But then we see in the Hebrew feast that God immediately tells them why this feast was to be celebrated not just for the, the natural, but to commemorate an experience of God's redemption in the life of the nation. And then additionally, there was the prophetic. There was the, the expectation that God had promised to fully do what he had begun to do, commemorated by this feast. The seasons then became a reminder, not just of the arbitrary powers of the gods of the heavens, but of the redemptive and gracious power of the only God, Jehovah, the Deliverer. For all of these feasts were intimately related with that event that we read about in Psalm 114, sang about this morning in the Psalms, and that is the exodus from Egypt. And that is a, a fact of Israelite history, of God's redemptive history, that we Gentile Christians should not lose sight of. It is an integral part, an integral event in the, in the history of God's redemption, the exodus. The exodus that happened, but was not quite completed. Now those three associations that I mentioned, or that Alexander mentions in his commentary, are fairly obvious for the first and the last of the three feasts. For the Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, this was at the beginning of the early harvest. This was the, the winter wheat, as we used to call it, I guess, in Pennsylvania. What we would sow, what the farmers would sow in the field to help the, the land hold together during the winter, and it would begin to sprout in early spring, and then there would be a first cutting. And that was the early harvest, but it was also commemorating the end of a long winter, or an end in the mind of the Jew of a long time of bondage. 
because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated to commemorate the fact that by the end of the winter they were out of yeast. And they were basically eating unleavened bread. But even more important, this was at the end of over 400 years of bondage, 400 years of enslavement, 400 years where they could not freely worship the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the commemorative aspect of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a deliverance from Egypt and the end of that long bondage. But the prophetic and Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would become symbolic of the prophetic deliverance from sin, that bondage that we all remain under, even if free, even if living in a free and sovereign nation, the Jews were still under the bondage of sin. The Feast of Tabernacles is another fairly obvious one from the natural standpoint. It was the Feast of the Full Harvest. It was the ingathering. It was the, 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 the wonderful party that, that so many societies still observe, agrarian societies, and, and, even, and even we do with our harvest festivals and Oktoberfest and things. That we're not even farmers, and we, we still commemorate that, that, that ancient heritage that we have of living off the land, of bringing in all of the harvest into the granary. He commemorated the wilderness journey and the living in tents and the waiting for the promise of God the entrance into the land, the promised land. And the prophetic aspect of the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles is, of course, that Sabbath rest that we are all in Christ promised in the new earth. And it is what the Jewish prophets looked forward to. They were the ones to first, by the power of the Holy Spirit, prophesied the new heaven and the new earth. The land, as Peter says, in which righteousness will dwell, where there will be no enmity, where there will be no bloodshed. This was what everyone looked forward to, and it was symbolized in the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles, but the one that we have in front of us, the Feast of Firstfruits. This one doesn't have as obvious a connection in the commemorative and the prophetic sense, but I agree with Alexander that if the other two do, this one does as well. And so did the Jewish rabbis who would teach on the meaning of the Feast of Firstfruits. The natural is fairly obvious. It comes right from the name. First fruits. This was the barley harvest. This was the, the grain that would come in um, early on in the season, and yet it would not be um, weak as the winter wheat was. It would be full and strong and ready to nourish. It, it was a, a, a promise for the people of a successful harvest to come at the end of the season. What was the commemorative aspect, however? Well, we don't have anything explicit. And so I will borrow from the Jewish tradition that taught based on Exodus 19 as they, as they sought to determine how long it took for Moses to lead the nation of Israel from the divided sea to Mount Sinai. They determined that it took 50 days. And so that Pentecost was significant and commemorative of the giving of the law on Sinai. Now, now we cannot prove that from Scripture but it has a certain plausibility to it because this is dealing with God's establishing for himself a people, a nation among the nations. And so he would make a treaty with them on the mount. And that treaty would be his law and it would be the pattern by which they were to live as they lived in the land. And that leads us to the prophetic, which is what Acts chapter 2 so powerfully displays to us 
and that is the new covenant writing of the law upon our hearts. These are three major elements of biblical religion. Not just Judaism, but Christianity as well. These are our heritage by grace and adoption. These belong to us now in Christ. And I think we should, we should study them and we should read about them and seek to understand, especially, maybe not the natural so much as the commemorative and the prophetic. For example, let's consider what is so popular in the church, eschatology. We know that Christ was crucified at Passover, that he was the, the Passover lamb. We know that the Spirit, as we're going to read in Acts chapter 2, was poured out upon the church as prophesied by Joel at Pentecost. Well, I wonder when the whole thing's going to all wrap up. It wouldn't surprise me, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not about to go on the air and predict a day. But as I've already said from Acts, it is not for us to know the time or the season, but we do know that there yet remains a feast that has not been fulfilled. Whether God chooses to do it in September, that's up to Him. But what He will do will be the fulfillment of tabernacles. For we now live in booths. We live in tabernacles. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For indeed, while we are in this tent, while we are in this tabernacle, or he could say while we are in this booth, we groan being burdened. The life that we live now, we wait for the fulfillment of that third feast. We need not wait for the fulfillment of Passover. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We need not wait for the fulfillment of Pentecost. For God has poured out His Spirit and has, as He has promised, written His law upon the heart of every regenerate person. There was an expectation in Israel then of the momentous during the feasts. There was a thought commemorative of gathering Israel together in Egypt and leading them out of bondage. Three times a year, God ordered that Israel would again be gathered together in His presence. And so there was an expectation, and we've already looked at the, the reality that because of the prophecy primarily of Daniel, that during the second temple period about which we're reading, there was a heightened expectation. These people were living in the time of that fourth empire, they knew, as the Magi did, as the promises were given, that the Messiah was coming. The history of God's presence amidst his people gave ample explanation for what happened on this Pentecost. And I, I would not be at least a bit surprised that the disciples woke up on this day expecting that something was about to happen. Jesus had just told them that they are to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. This was in between Passover and Pentecost. The Jews from the dispersion were gathered in Jerusalem for this time. They would come for Passover, stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and because of how long it took to travel home and back, they would usually stay until the Feast of Firstfruits. Then they would go home. And so I have no doubt that Peter and John and James and the rest woke up that morning wondering, oh, this is Pentecost. 
Luke seems to indicate that in the way, and, and perhaps your Bibles don't, don't read it this way. I know my New American Standards does not. But literally, he writes in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, emphasizing the advent of this second feast in the calendar, and of course, they were all gathered together. Again, that image of all Israel coming together. There were two times in God's history with the Jews when he manifestly appeared to them in a way that they could see visibly. The first we read about in Exodus chapter 40 when Moses and the children of Israel had completed the construction of the tabernacle. We read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The second time we read this is in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon finished the completion of the temple. And we read, And it came about when the priests came from the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is known as the Shekinah, which is a Hebrew word that is actually not found in the Bible, but it means the settling, the, the, the coming down. Okay? The, the dwelling of God's glory. It is actually a word that is derived from the same word that means tabernacle. The word mishkan. So Shekinah has to do with God's tabernacling in our midst. Now that should remind you of what we read in the Gospel of John. That the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This this was God's stamp of approval of the place that the people had built for him according to his pattern. First, the tabernacle. God caused his name to dwell there, and he visibly proved that fact by allowing the cloud of glory to descend upon it. Then the temple, all of the materials and the plans prepared by David, but built by Solomon his son, whose name means peace. And when it was completed, and the priests did their first sacrifice and offering in the holy place, the cloud descended. Now there was no cloud at that time, remember? The Israelites were in the land. They were not being led by a cloud. But to remind them and to encourage them that God was causing his name to dwell in this building in Jerusalem as he did with that mobile tabernacle in the wilderness, the cloud came down upon the temple. I would submit to you that that is what we're reading about here in Acts chapter 2. That we are looking at God's stamp of approval and His causing His name now to dwell in a new temple. Jesus Himself said, destroy this temple, speaking of the one in Jerusalem, and in three days I will build it up. And John explains to us he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, one greater than Moses has come. And one greater than Solomon has come. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves and resting on each one of them. This was a visible and audible manifestation of the presence of God in his temple. We spoke this morning, a question was asked, what about people who pray 
for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. People, Christians, who believe that this is integral to, to eschatology, that that temple should be rebuilt. I think what we're seeing and what we see in Scripture is the temple is being built. He is building the true temple, the body of Jesus Christ, and he has given his approbation, his stamp of approval, by causing his spirit to visibly come on the day of its dedication and dwell in that temple. But there is a significant difference between what we read about in the Old Testament and what we read about here in the book of Acts. And this is incredibly significant, in my opinion, from the standpoint of, of, of you and me, of, of what we do with this, of what the disciples did with it when we first see it in Acts chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 40, after that Shekinah descended upon the tabernacle, we read, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled on it. This is Moses, the man who speaks face to face with God, God's friend. He couldn't go into the tent because of the glory. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, immediately after the cloud descending upon Solomon's temple, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In these first two instances, when the glory, and that word means the weight, when it, it, almost you could say with the, the heaviness of the majesty of God, came down upon that tabernacle, came down upon that temple, the men who were anointed to serve couldn't. The glory was too great. I imagine they were like the angels who with one pair of, of their wings cover their eyes. Probably there was a, an associated noise that covered their ears. We can't imagine what that must have been like. But we can read that it rendered the ministers of God incapable of ministry. It was so glorious. But listen to what we read in Acts chapter 2. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. They were not cast out of the upper room. They were not cast out of Solomon's colonnade, wherever they may have been. They were not rendered in incompetent or incapable of ministering. They were empowered. That's the difference. It was indeed a show of God's incredible glory but this time, because it was the last time, the final time, the ultimate one, God's temple was now manned and ready, armed with the Holy Spirit. The gospel of the kingdom immediately goes out at Pentecost. As much as we see the organic continuity, and I think we should, in the revelation of God from the Old Testament to the New, we cannot fail to see the significances of the events from this particular Passover to this particular Pentecost in the year of our Lord's death. We've talked a lot in classes on Thursday night and Sunday schools about this continuity, discontinuity. How were people saved in the Old Covenant? Were they regenerated in the Old Covenant? How did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Covenant? And there are those who want to make a clean break between the Old and the New. And I would say we are not of that number. But there are also those who want to make such a continuity that you cannot see. It's almost a seamless transition between the old to the new. And I don't know that I can come up with an image that captures 
my impression of it, but there was indeed a continuity that was interrupted by a, a massive infusion of divine grace and glory at a particular time in history that cannot be ignored. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God happened at Passover in history once for all. The victory of the Messiah over sin, death, and Satan, that happened at the resurrection. The ascension of the Son of Man to the right hand of glory. As we read in Daniel, the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and receiving for himself a kingdom that will never end. That happened at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon man. That also happened in history on the day of Pentecost. These things, these things are, are, are worth feasting over. They did happen. They're part of our history now. And we should celebrate them. Because what we are celebrating is the building of the true temple of God. Peter says that we as living stones are being fashioned and placed into a holy habitation for God's glory. That is the temple that's being built. Paul calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just our individual bodies, but together, corporately, not just Fellowship Bible Church, but all of the churches that name the name of Jesus Christ in spirit and truth. This is the temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the temple. God has not removed His glory from the earth. Though He has from individual churches. And we solemnly remember the statements the Lord makes to the churches in the book of Revelation. Unless you repent, I will come and remove my lampstand from you. That was the fire. That was the light in the temple. I will take it from you. And so individual churches sadly have lost that. But the church itself on earth, that kingdom, that manifestation of the kingdom of God is still empowered and not barred for ministry. And we believe that it is no longer the Levites that are limited or that the ministry is limited to. We believe that it's not just the clergy. It's not just the people that wear the dog collar or the robes. It's not just the people who have the, the degrees from a seminary, but everyone who is regenerate in Jesus Christ has been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and is able to minister to the glory of God according to the gifts that the Holy Spirit distributes just as He will. Every member ministry, He has made us all both priests and kings to His glory. And so between the continuity and discontinuity, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is Jesus Christ. And I think we need to beware that we don't pretend that Jesus Christ is something new, a new idea that God came up with because of the, the stubborn hearts of His people Israel. Hey, I'll send my son. We'll see how that goes. But we also shouldn't see Jesus Christ as such a continuous aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that we fail to appreciate what he did and who he was and is. He is the union of man and spirit without sin. He is the second Adam, or the last Adam, as Paul calls him. One commentator says the changes lie, the change lies in the revelation of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, the relation 
of the Holy Spirit to the human spirit. This is the difference between the Old and the New Testament, the relation of the Holy Spirit to the human spirit. What had to happen before the human spirit could once again become the abode of the Holy Spirit? Well, a man needed to be born and live and die, though he possessed in himself no sin at all. Commentator goes on, It was the union of the divine and human natures in the person of Jesus Christ which first made it possible for the divine to dwell in a human personality. I do not believe that what has happened since Pentecost was possible before Pentecost. Or I should put it this way, what has happened at Pentecost and beyond was not possible before Passover. That Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure, offered up the perfect sacrifice so that men and women and children in Him and with His righteousness could once again be the temples, the dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we see happening in the day of Pentecost and what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts and then for the past 2,000 years, this is what some writers have called a new exodus. The situation in first century Judea was not entirely different for the Jews than was Egypt thousands of years before, or even from Babylon, where the Jews had only half a millennium before been in exile. Israel was in the land, but they were not free. And, and if you think any Jew of that time considered themselves to be free in the sense that God had promised them, they did not have a Davidic king sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem. They had a horribly corrupt high priestly office. The temple itself was defiled by money changers and politics. They were not free. And many rabbis wrote about the fact that they were still in bondage and wrote and desired that exodus that had not yet been completed. Many others used the terminology of the exile in Babylon. Yes, they had come back. Not all of them, but many of them had come back, but they were still progressive or successively under the bondage of the Medo-Persians or the Greeks and now the Romans. They were not free. And so they were looking for that freedom and they didn't miss the fact that each of these feasts was associated with that very exodus that became part of their language of deliverance. Many of them did understand that the ultimate deliverance was not from an earthly tyrant or an empire, but rather from sin. From that which separated, as the book of Numbers said, sin has made a separation between you and God. That was the true bondage. And this was the deliverance. The death of Christ at Passover and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost both speak of a new exodus. The gathering together of a new Israel. And instead of going into one particular land and conquering the Canaanites that dwelt there and taking over that land, it would be reversed. And the ministers of God and Jesus Christ would go out from that land into the world, conquering by the Holy Spirit 
people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Many of those nations were represented on the day of Pentecost by the Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. When we look at further in chapter 2, we are going to see how many nations of the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world were represented. And this teaches us of what God's plan had been all along. Not that salvation would be limited to the Jews. Not that God's glory would be isolated to one city, or let's put it this way, one mount in one city, in one small country in the world. That's where we would find God. No. But rather, as the prophets desired, that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're seeing here. It wasn't exodus from one bondage to another. It wasn't isolation from one nation to another. But rather, it was preservation until the time was fully come. And then out from there would go the gospel of the kingdom. The first fruits were being gathered in. The feast of Passover and unleavened bread, the the suffering and the woe of the passion of Christ, and of the ingathering, the first fruits, have come. The feast of booths is next. Let us pray. Father, we do... Thank you and express our gratitude that you have grafted us in to this rich history of redemption that you have preserved for us in the nation of Israel and in your holy word. And we recognize ourselves as adopted into a family that stretches back to the patriarch Abraham and from there even further back. We recognize, Father, that we are one with them through Jesus Christ our Lord the Jewish Messiah, and the light of the Gentiles. We pray, Father, that these wonderful feasts, these commemorative and prophetic events in the history of your people would become the same for us. Not that we would celebrate them, but rather that we would understand them and see their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Father, we do long for the ingathering. We long for the third feast on that calendar, the Feast of Booths, when you will gather all of your people to yourself. We pray that you would do this for your glory, and as the scriptures pray, that you would indeed do it quickly. For we ask it in Jesus' name.